Basketball Society. What's up, everybody? Alex Fishbein back again with another episode of The Atlantic Files, and we are on episode number 55. And if you didn't tune in last week, I uh, introduced a new sort of series we have going on here for the next few weeks. Um, We're doing a team a week, and we're doing like their year in review, kind of giving them a grade on how their season went how it went in terms of record, how it went in terms of moves made, how it went in terms of, you know, groups of players on the team that may have been there from before or may have just came in recently. And so the first team in our series here, we have the Brooklyn Nets. I decided to start from the bottom up. You know, we've talked about the Celtics and the Raptors a lot recently just because they were the only two teams to make it into the postseason. So it was only right to give the Nets a little bit of their uh, spotlight here, give them a little bit of their TV time so we can kind of dive in and see what kind of season they had. Now, we all know their season wasn't great. I mean, like I said, I'm starting from the bottom up, so that just means they were last, (laughs) Um, and they ended up finishing with a record of 20 and 62, Um, really wasn't much better than like Sixers records of the past, or even really that much worse slash better than the Nets records uh, in the last couple seasons. Um. They really couldn't put together like any kind of win streaks throughout the season. Uh, they were awful on the road. They were seven and thirty-four on the road. They were thirteen and twenty-eight at home. Um, even in the division, with two teams like the Sixers and the Knicks, who really struggled all season long, they were only three and thirteen. So you can see that they struggle from all aspects, even though they did finish off the season with a 5-5 five and five record in their last 10 games. Um, they, they obviously have a lot of work to do. I mean, we've talked about the Nets a lot in regards to their trade with the Boston Celtics because they gave up tons of their picks just to get the um, past their prime corpses of Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and really since that season they haven't done anything at all and even in that season they still didn't look like an actual contender so I guess you could really say that the Brooklyn Nets mortgaged their future for absolutely nothing so anyway let's get into this year in review so I I split their their the team up a little bit here I split the grades up um, the, the first group of the team that I graded was Jeremy Lin, Brooke Lopez, and Trevor Booker. They are, you know, they're, they're, they're the veterans of the group. They're the leaders of the group. Uh, and then, of course, Lopez is the most tenured net on the team. Uh, Lopez finished this season with averages of 20.5 points per game, 5.4 rebounds per game, 2.3 assists, 1.7 blocks, 
while shooting 47% from the floor and 346 from three-point. Now, the biggest thing to point out, Brooke Lopez, is he's actually shooting threes now. We have not seen Brooke Lopez shoot threes really at all. Um, out of Lopez's um, field goal attempts, uh, less than 1% of all of his field goal attempts were from three in his last eight seasons combined. And this year alone, 33% of his field goal attempts came from the three-point line. That is obviously a substantial improvement on his confidence from the three-point line and a substantial uh, alter to his mindset in saying, hey, the league is moving to this stretch big. I need to do something about that if I want to stay in this league. And so I think that his improved three-point ability has definitely made him more enticing of a trade target for other teams, for a team who may need a center going forward. And so I think he has really put himself in a position to get looks from other teams that may want to acquire his services. Um, he did decline a little bit in rebounds. Um, his defense wasn't as great either. I mean, he was never like an elite defender, but it just wasn't really... I mean, other teams knew that he's he was their best player. Other teams were, you know, swarming him when he was on offense, and then when he was on defense, as long as he really didn't take it straight to the paint or if you had a stretch big that he had to cover, he really wasn't much of a, of a factor at all on defense. So there wasn't much issue with that for other for opposing teams. And his, like I said, his rebounding took a dip, which, which it was kind of surprising. Um, usually he's a pretty good rebounder. Uh, I mean, he's not awful but he's also not like the guy you would really say around the league if you really needed a rebound you would pick Brooke Lopez it's not really what you would do for that either um his career average for rebounding was 7.1 and the season before like not this past season but the season before he averaged 7.4 rebounds and this was his second worst uh rebounding average in a season and that was only because the other season he played five games and was limited by injury. Um, and so this was also his second worst season in terms of rebound percentage. Uh, he had a 9.6% rebound rate, uh, whereas his worst was that same season. He only played five games, and that was 77 Um He... he while on the court, he was a negative. I mean, he was minus 4.2. But if you look at the total on-off for Lopez, he was a plus 5.1, which just goes to show you how outmatched the Brooklyn Nets were. If your best player was a minus on the court and still somehow an overall positive, that goes to show you are getting destroyed when he's off the court and you're still getting beat but not by that much if he's on the court <laughs> like it, either way you're losing um so it's not great so then jeremy lynn he only played 36 games 
he was also limited by injury. Um, he was he, he just couldn't really stay on the court. Like even after he came back from his original injury in the beginning of the season, seemed to have other nagging injuries after that, and he would play like a few games and then be off a few games, and then come back for a game here and there. He never really got to really create any kind of rhythm. He never got to really create any kind of chemistry with the starting squad or even the bench squad. So there's a a lot of improvement that Jeremy Lin can uh, bring on there when he's, you know, next season when he's actually playing more often. There's a lot of uh, chemistry that they can work on uh, with guys like Brooke Lopez, with Booker, with Sean Kilpatrick. Uh, those guys and and Hollis Jefferson. There's a lot of stuff that they can work on that just chemistry itself will help out. Uh, but in those 36 games played this season, Lynn averaged 14 and a half points, 5.1 assists, 3.8 rebounds, 1.1 steals, two and a half turnovers, and shot 43, uh, almost 44 percent from the floor. And 37.2% from three-point. So, I mean, really, uh, nothing jumped off the page about Lynn when he actually did play. This is pretty much like what he's been giving you for the most part these uh, over his career ever since Lynn Sanity happened in New York. Um, when he went to Houston, he was putting up about these same numbers. When he went to uh, Charlotte, he his numbers dipped a little, but or at least his assist numbers did. He was still scoring around the same. Um, there's just really not much to expect out of Jeremy Lin. I know they gave him a pretty big contract because, I mean, right away he was one of their best players as soon as they signed him. And... I mean, I guess you could call it a good signing by Brooklyn as well because now you have a guy who's at least been in the league for a little bit, still on the younger side, and can help at least be a leader and a mentor for the young guys, especially for your guards, because before the only real mentor you had was Brooke Lopez, and for guards and everything, that's not really going to help you at all. So that does help in that aspect. Um but he's not a guy to really learn from if you want your point guard to be an all-around player. Uh, Lynn really seems more suited for a six-man role to come in and just kind of, you know, score for you and be the the second unit playmaker more so than your starting point guard, your go-to guy, the one you really want to set up the offense and run the offense through the entire game. That's not that's not his kind of his not his style of play. And you're really not going to max his potential out of that kind of style or that kind of role either. So there's really he has limited mentor ability when it comes to that. Um but yeah, I mean Five assists per game, almost two and a half turnovers per game, about a two to one assist to turnover ratio. It's that's okay. I mean, it's not awful. Um, def, like I said, definitely not starting point guard material for that. Um, like it's not anywhere close to like a John Wall, Chris Paul, that kind of player um, who will get you 
close to 10 assists per game as well as scoring 20 or more per game too um really what i would like to see from lynn next season is to see if he can actually stay on the court for longer periods of time and longer periods of the season um i would also kind of like to see lynn become more of a leader more of a vocal leader and a leader by example both on and off the court um when he's on the court i mean he, he does get the offense started and run the offense but a lot of the times he doesn't really look like the leader that's like okay guys like we need to pick our heads up we need like we're still in this you know he's not the guy to really he doesn't seem to be the guy to get his team back up and running he doesn't seem to be the guy that will be like a morale leader or anything like that like when we were watching the nba finals you saw the cavaliers get destroyed in uh golden state after game two and when the guys are walking back to the locker room, you see LeBron turn around and he's giving handshakes to people. He's, you know, like tapping them on the shoulder and saying like, hey, man, next game. Like, we got another game. We got another one. Like, we're still in it. You just like, you got to get your mind right. And he's he's telling these guys and he's telling them like, hey, one game at a time, one possession at a time. Like, this is like we're here. We're in it. That's not the kind of person that I I would see Jeremy Lin as. And, um, I mean, just from the way that Jeremy Lin really came onto the scene with the whole Lin sanity, it was never really in his cards to really use that. That that wasn't something in his repertoire was like the vocal leadership role or the morale leadership role was never there. Um, if he were to be some kind of leader, it would be more of a lead by example. But even then, like I said, if you're injured all the time, if you're only playing 36 games in a season, you can't really do that either. So that's what I'm looking for more for Jeremy Lin this upcoming season. Um, Lin on the court was a negative as well. He was minus 3 and 3.7. Uh, and then as a net on-off, he was uh, positive, and he was plus 3.4. And when looking at, like, field goal attempts and everything, when Lopez and Lynn were both playing, they did account for about a quarter of the team's field goal attempts per game. I mean, these two guys were putting up around, I would say, uh, I believe it was like 22, 23, 24 field goal attempts per game. Um, and that was like an average night for the two of them combined. Uh, and the team itself was putting up about 80 per game. Um, so, I mean, one, that's not really a lot per game. Um, and two, you would kind of expect Jeremy Lin and Brooke Lopez to be those leading guys. I mean, like I said, those are your best players on the team. So they're going to be the ones that will, you know, lead you in scoring, lead you in, in shots and everything. And if you want to compare like the, the field goal attempts per game. Um, so golden state who plays usually a faster paced style of ball there, they, they shot 87.1 field goal attempts per game. And they were actually ninth in the league with 97 attempts per game. And when I go and look at the Brooklyn Nets here, they're 17th. They actually shot 85.2 per game. Um, so, 
you can see their their pace isn't really at a at a point where they're going to outrun many teams. Um, even though actually their their pace factor on an estimate of of per forty eight minutes, their pace was near the top. It was one hundred one point three. Um, but in that. I don't. I don't see that as more of a product of the Brooklyn Nets offense. Um, I mean, yeah, they can get out in transition because they're a younger team and they have some athletic guys in like Kilpatrick and Hollis Jefferson. Uh, they now have KJ McDaniel's, uh, Andrew Nicholson. They have some athletic players, but really, the faster pace in their games really seemed to be because teams were scoring like almost at will against them um teams were i mean because if you look at it uh the opponent field goal attempts per game against brooklyn they were last it the teams were getting up 90 shots per game against brooklyn and they were making 41 of them and that was second to last uh so I mean, team teams were averaging 112 points per game against the Brooklyn Nets. So th- this this faster pace is definitely not a testament to how fast Brooklyn is going. It's more of a testament to how bad the defense is, therefore forcing the game to go in a quicker pace because other teams can score when they want to. <laughs> so... I mean that that's really where the Brooklyn Nets are in terms of that, um, and then the last veteran there, Booker, he's averaged ten points per game, about eight rebounds per game, uh, almost two assists, and then one point one steals. I think Booker looked at least looked like the biggest leader on the team. You know, he was the guy that was always encouraging people. He was the guy that was jumping off the bench and cheering anytime something big happened. When he was on the floor, you know, he was hustling after everything and he just seemed to be the guy almost like the the Nets version of Draymond Green, the one guy that'll go out there and say something to a teammate to be like, "Hey, this is what I see. This is what you need to do." And if you don't, like, we're not going to win this game. Um, Booker seemed like more of that to me. And just from that alone, I think he's a big part of this team and that they would benefit more in keeping Booker than they would in in letting him go. And, I mean, he seems happy in Brooklyn as well. Like, from everything I've seen, Booker does not seem to be upset about the situation in Brooklyn with, you know, all the young guys there and them not having their draft picks and all all this stuff making it, you know, uh, harder to envision them getting that much better in the near future. But if you have a guy who is enjoying his playing time, who is enjoying to be on this team even when the team is in the basement of the league, that's someone you want to keep. That's someone that you know is there to, you know, compete. That's someone that is there because he loves the game. And that's someone who is going to help a lot of your younger players uh, get acclimated to the competition and level of the league because that's someone, since he loves it so much, he is more than willing to help anyone out. 
so I think that Booker is actually a big part of this team. But so my my overall grade for those three guys, I gave a C minus. Um, and the only reason I didn't give a D is because Lopez stretching his game out to the three-point line, I gave him a big plus for that because it's not easy to go from barely shooting any threes at all to then uh, shooting almost 35% from three for a center, for a seven-foot center on top of that. Um, And then I also give it for Booker and his uh, ability to help lead the young guys, help mentor them, and, you know, still put up a okay stat line, especially for someone who can come off and play for your second unit. So, the next group there I did, Young Bloods and Rookies. Um, young Bloods more meaning the young guys that have been in the league for at least a year or two. Uh, and then Rookies, obviously, that explains itself. Um, so, the first one I looked at is Sean Kilpatrick. I think he has proved that he has a spot in the league. I think that he can be a decent, you know, end of the rotation kind of player. Uh, he could even play his way up to like a six man, I think. But right now, I would see him like on a good team, more of like an end of rotation kind of player. Uh, he averaged 13 points per game, four rebounds per game, two assists, and shot 41.5% from the floor with 34% from three point. You know, I expected him to shoot a lot better from three-point. I expected him to shoot a lot better from the floor because after, like, a season of really, you know, coming up from the D-League and really getting used to the competition, I thought he was going to improve more this season. Um, I, I don't exactly... Couldn't exactly see what happened. I know that he got into slumps uh, a lot this season, and there were times where he was kind of juggled from in and out of the starting lineup um I think it was more of the coaching uh or the coaches kind of seeing where exactly he fits in the rotation I think that they don't know exactly what they want to use him as I don't know if they want like like they're kind of experimenting to see if they really want to keep him as like their starting shooting guard or if they want to bring him in as the sixth man because he is a scorer that that's his main thing that he he's a guy who can come in and give you you know those 13 14 points he reminds me more of like a Lou Williams type of player where you know he can be a playmaker a little bit but that's not what you want him to be that's not his main thing uh in the offense he's that guy that can come in and get you those key threes get you uh some tough buckets at the rim and and go to the line get some foul shots he definitely reminds me a lot of Lou Williams and so I think that the coaching, the the coaches there are really trying to figure out, you know, can Kilpatrick be our starter? Do we want to keep him there or do we want to try other guys like maybe Levert or maybe put in, um, try Whitehead at shooting guard or KJ McDaniels, you know, try one of them and see if they work out. Uh, speaking of those young guys, Hollis Jefferson, I think, is turning into a carbon copy of Kid Gilchrist. Now, his shot doesn't seem to be as broken as Kid Gilchrist, but Kid Gilchrist is at least, you know, getting help for his shot in the offseason. I know he's working with a shot coach to get his form and everything corrected. 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, Hollis Jefferson should be working on his offense in the offseason because that I think that's the one thing that he needs to work on. His defense is perfectly fine where it is. And he's obviously, you know, w- with conditioning, with getting like better, um, like working with like agility ladders, stuff like that, that's going to improve your defense. There's really not a specific defensive skill that I would say he should work on. Um, he, he's a very, very nice defensive talent for them. And he could definitely be that Kid Gilchrist, that Tony Allen for the Nets moving forward when they do keep on building this team. Um, Isaiah Whitehead, he had a lot of growing pains. He did not shoot well at all. He was under 30% from uh, three point. I think it was around like twenty seven. Um, it was either twenty seven or twenty four. I can't remember exactly the number, but he he was also uh, under forty percent from field goal uh, or from the floor. Um, you know, had a high turnover rate. Uh, they start. They had him at the starting point guard spot for a little while when Lynn originally went down with the injury. And he wasn't exactly producing. I think this this coming season is going to be like a really telling one for him. If he can't turn that around into at least like an average level, I think that the Nets will give up on him and kind of go on to the next one and and try and bring up somebody from the D League, see if they work out more, uh, or if they draft a point guard, they could keep him keep that drafted uh, prospect over Whitehead as well. I think if you're looking at it in like a list, Whitehead would kind of be near the bottom right now out of their young guys to, you know, kind of be dropped down to the D League or just released in general. Uh, KJ McDaniels, he was a good addition uh, because, you know, I mean, he he has defensive potential. We saw with the Sixers that he can be a very nice defensive player with a, a – a big play ability due to his athleticism. He has a lot to work on on offense as well. It seems to be the the ongoing factor with the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, but he has a lot to work on. He, he His shot is not great. Um, so, you know, him, Hollis Jefferson, Kilpatrick, all those guys might as well get in the gym together <laughs> and go work with, like, a couple shooting coaches and uh, really buckle down and see what they can come up with for this next season. Uh, they also took a chance and, and tried out Dinwiddie. Um, I mean, he turned out to be like a average to below average kind of experiment. He averaged uh, seven points per game and three assists per game in 59 games played. Uh, he was only playing about, on average, 22 minutes per game. Um, I mean, his assist to turnover ratio was okay. I think it was pro- like around two to one or a little bit under that. Even I think it was I think he had like three assists per game with like around two turnovers, and so I mean Dinwiddie is kind of giving you exactly what everyone expected at this point after not really uh, becoming what the Pistons needed him to be. He's just kind of sunken down to a bottom of the barrel prospect that people will you know take a flyer on if they're just trying to get through the season and get to the draft like the Brooklyn Nets did so that's where I see Dinwiddie right now I I don't see him sticking with the team either now Karis LeVert seems to have a lot of promise um he's coming along slowly after his injury you know like he had the injury in college and so he didn't even play 
Uh, pretty sure he didn't even play his entire first season. Um, and he seems to be a guy that the Brooklyn Nets are really prepared to wait for. They, he, he seems to be the guy that they want to be able to, you know, put the time and work in to try and build him up to, to what they want him to be. I'm not sure if that exactly will pan out for, you know, for that high of a mark. Like if they're expecting that high of a mark. Um, but he does seem to have some promise. He seems like there, there were flashes there where I'm like, okay, okay, Levert, Levert can play. Uh, he can he can hold his own in the league, but there's still a long, long ways to go for Levert as well. And like I said, the the ongoing like feel here, the ongoing theme is that they have a long way to go. And the team itself has a long way to go before it can really get that good of prospects because they traded away all of their picks. They still have, like, uh, um, Boston still has one of Brooklyn's picks next year as well. And I think they still have a pick swap. So, uh, the Nets are, like, we can we can keep talking about them all we want right now. And we can talk about them all we want next season. But the the fact of the matter is, we're still going to have to wait a long time before the Brooklyn Nets can actually act on anything because they're only going to get the prospects, you know, that everyone else was like, ah, we don't want them. So they're just kind of like, well, maybe we can find a diamond in the rough somewhere in here. And if not, well, we still have to wait a few more years anyway. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so for their overall season, I gave them a D plus. Uh, it's probably like one of the highest grades that you'll see them get. I feel like a lot of other outlets will probably give them an F or a D or a D minus um, or an F minus minus. <laughs> they they won't get high marks at all. And like I said, going into this off season, they're still giving valuable draft picks to Boston. This one's number one overall. Uh, so they have to do their due diligence. They have to really study all of these prospects that can be second rounders, that can you know be undrafted players. They have to really dive in there and try and figure out something and find that diamond in the rough. Whether it means going into both summer leagues, the the Utah one and the big one in Las Vegas, um. Like, you have to, like, you might as well bring two teams. You might as well get two full teams and try out these guys and see which one sticks. See if you like any. Because, really, you have nothing to lose at this point. Um, I do like the coaching and front office moves that they made last offseason. I think that both of them have been, uh, have done as good of a job as they can right now. Um, and then this season, I think they have to try to trade Lopez because his contract is only through the 2017-18 season. So if you just let Lopez walk, that's a huge, huge loss, especially because you don't have picks anymore. Um, well, picks right now. So they have to really buckle down and do all they can to try and trade Lopez so that they can get him off the books, get him you know get get some picks in return or at least some decent prospects and see if you see if that helps jumpstart the rebuild at least a little bit because you're gonna need every inch you can take on that 
Um, but so I also said in the last episode we would talk about the prospects of the week. Now I'm I'm gonna do a few of them um, just because you know that's that's what we're gonna have to do with the draft coming up soon. Um, so what I'm doing here, I'm pulling up our scouting reports. If you have not seen them, you should definitely go to basketballsocietyonline.com. We have a section for the N- the upcoming NBA draft, and that is where you'll find all of our scouting reports. We are trying to get as many of those guys up there before the actual draft as we possibly can. So definitely check that out. We have guys ranging from you know the known top picks in faults and ball all the way down to undrafted guys like Jamel Artis from Pitt. So there are a lot of different scouting reports we have here. So the one guy I want to talk about today, well, one of the guys I want to talk about today is Frank Nidalekina. He is the one international guard that really looks to be the most promising. Um, he is from France. Uh, he comes in at six foot five, about 170. Really young guy. He was only born in 98, uh, so he's, he's really young. He's at the point guard spot. So his strengths... Uh, Nidalekina has some great length for the point guard position, obviously at six foot five. Uh, he he's, has a pretty good shot, and he can extend it anywhere past the three-point line. He, he was shooting 39% from deep this year. Um, he's a guy that can put it on the floor, get to the rack. Uh, you know, with, long, with being six foot five, long strides and a quick first step, that's like some, like, not I am not saying he's as athletic as um, uh, Russell Westbrook, but that that's what allows Westbrook to do what he does, being as tall and long as he is and having that quick first step. That's what helps you get past defenders. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, we also have a video on here of our scouting report. He was working with uh, Carmelo Anthony, um, or sorry, working in Carmelo Anthony's gym, uh, and he's kind of in, you know, he, he shows off that first step in the long strides in that video, so you can definitely check that out on our site. Um, but yeah, so he, he's a guy that will be good at attacking the basket and can also hit it from deep. Um, he's also a very nice defender. Uh, he averaged almost about one steal per game, and that was only in 18 minutes per game of playtime. Um, there's, I mean, that that's a lot for only playing less than 20 minutes a game. And he has proven that he can guard both the one and the two. So, I mean, that that's big because the NBA now is all about being pretty much positionless. Like, that, uh, positionless is like the new NBA. Guys who can play two spots, three spots, whatever it may be. Um, so, weaknesses... He does not have a crazy amount of handles. He's not a guy that's going to, you know, go out there and break someone's ankles a la Kyrie Irving. Um, He's not a guy like Stephen Curry who has some great handles and uses them productively to get to his spot. Um, He's more of a guy that does rely on that quick first step. Um, So when it comes to that, he does lose the ball. Uh, a little too often so far um he 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 doesn't really play low to the ground he has a very upright sort of posture 
So, especially at six point, uh, six point five, sorry, <laughs> six foot five, uh, especially at six foot five, that's not going to help you out. You like, you need to be low to the ground, especially if you're facing other point guards that are, you know, six one, six two, uh, that they'll be able to get quick hands in there and have a field day on that. Um, he's a he's a decent playmaker. Um, he's a decent slasher. But he's not elite in either of those. Uh, I mean, he'll still be able to make an impact, especially with starters' minutes. But he isn't exactly... He isn't exactly going to be one that comes in and puts up Rookie of the Year numbers right away. So... It's going to be... Like, it's risky. It's an international guy. He's not... Uh, exactly proven yet because one, he like I said, he's only averaging, um, he was only averaging like about eighteen point six minutes per game. So we haven't even seen that much of him. There's not much of a sample size to see exactly what he would be. And two, he is also playing internationally, so he's not playing the greatest of competition. I mean, he is up in a professional league, so he's playing some of that. Some of France's top competition, but that doesn't really. There's no comparison to the NBA uh, with that, and so our our professional comparison for him was Jordan Crawford. Um, if you don't remember Jordan Crawford, he was more of the talented scorer that can create on his own, and then you know playmaking ability was kind of his second, uh, like second thought. Um, it was more to look for his own shot than to be the playmaker. Um, and we're predicting him to go around between picks 8 through 12. So, the next guy we have here is Laurie Markinen. If you did not know, he played for University of Arizona. He is the stretch forward for them. He is 7 foot, about 225. Uh, he's about one year older than Nita Aquina. And this guy's a very, very talented shooter. And given that he's seven foot and a very talented shooter, he's going to stick in the NBA. That's just, he, he has those shades of Dirk where, you know, he may not be that crazy athletic guy. He may not be the uh, rim protector but he's the guy who's going to go out there and just get buckets, whether it be a pick-and-pop player, whether it be a guy you can even set a screen for and he can hit something on a, on a fadeaway or, or on a three-pointer, um, especially with a point guard, with an NBA-level point guard. I mean, he has the potential to do a ton of damage. Um especially for a seven footer so now his weaknesses is defense he only had 19 blocks with only seven of them coming at the rim and usually if you're picking a seven foot big man like nine times out of ten it's because he's a defensive rim protecting guy that that's just what it is uh so really when he comes in He's most likely going to be bullied in the paint. That that's just a given, because uh, he's also not really that big for seven foot. But 
the reason a team's going to pick him is because they need that shooting. They need someone who can stretch the floor. Um, so risks, he, I mean, any seven foot big man has the risk of getting any kind of foot lower body injuries. Um, he said he did deal with a lot of ailments this year, even though he did play in every single one of Arizona's games. Uh, so really his biggest risk is that injury bug. You just have to really hope he doesn't, um, hit anything like that. And our interesting stat for him, uh, we had as he's the only forward in the NCAA this year to shoot 49% from the field and 42% from deep, uh, and 83% from the line. So our comparison for him was Chris Depp's Porzingis and our draft prediction is between about picks five and 10. But we will give you guys some more prospects next week, and we will bring another team for you guys next week as well for our Team of the Week uh, year in review. That is it for me here. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Atlantic Files, and I'll catch you guys next week. Peace!